Blog Talk Radio. Hi there, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist from teachmetotalk.com and myei2.com. And boy, do we have a great show today. We're going to skip all the normal yada, yada, yada announcements or whatever and go straight to our special guest who is Leslie Lindsay. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me today. I'm so excited to have you. Leslie is the author of a wonderful book. An excellent resource for speech pathologists, other developmental interventionists, and certainly for parents, and it's called Speaking of Apraxia, A Parent's Guide to Childhood Apraxia Speech. And Leslie has a wonderful story to share. She is a nurse, and she, more importantly, is a mom of a darling little girl who happened to be diagnosed with apraxia, and Leslie is going to walk us through her whole experience as not only a mom, but then as author of this uh, excellent resource that I hope that um, our listeners, if they have not had a chance to pick that up and take a look at that, that they will certainly do that after today's show. So, Leslie, why don't you introduce yourself and then tell us how all of this started. Sure. I'd be happy to. Thank you, Laura. I think that really is a nice introduction that you gave me already. But, um, yeah, um, I, I am a mother first, and I, I really like to kind of qualify that as first I'm a mom, and I really mm-hmm. just started out this apraxia journey being concerned and being a, a, a typical mama who wanted to take care of her little girl. And um, so, so how old was your little girl when you first started to be concerned about her well, uh, communication Kate, development? Um, Kate is um, currently, she is eight years old, but at the time, she was diagnosed at two and a half with apraxia, but mm-hmm. backing up, even before that two and a half diagnosis, I kind of knew like around age one that maybe there yeah. was something kind of amiss. Right. So I, uh, you know, I was just very kind of concerned, but honestly, I was probably more in denial than anything. Right, right. So did you share that concern with your doctor? Did you talk to the pediatrician about that? You bet. I sure did. Um, When Kate was about a year old, we were sitting in the pediatrician's office, just like you do for every well-child checkup, and she said, well, Leslie, is Kate talking yet? Is she saying anything, mama, dada, anything? And I said, no, she really isn't. And so, you know, the doctor said, well, I tell you what, some kids – are a little later to talk, and that's fine. But I tell you what, if she's not talking at 15 months when you guys come back in, let's let's look into things. Right. 15 months rolled around, still not talking. Um, yeah. And then at 18 months, we got a little concerned. Right. Mm-hmm. And so did the doctor talk about uh, perhaps getting her assessed by someone, or was he just kind of, he or she kind of leaving that open-ended with, we'll do what you want? Yeah, um, <laughs> we have a really great doctor. This is the same doctor who delivered Kate, and um, she was really on top of things. And she said, I tell you what, let's take you, – you can decide, Mom. You can decide if you want to take the conservative approach or if you want to be a little more liberal with this. Um, right. But let's um, let's go – 
and have her checked out by the time she's 18 months old if she's not talking. But okay. you could do it sooner if you wanted to. And that's and still so, pretty early, even 18 months. And she, I think mm-hmm. your doctor should be committed for that because so many pediatricians uh, mm-hmm. and family practitioners say wait until two. Wait until right. two. And so, and I hate that advice for parents because it gives them that six months or nine months that could have really addressed it, even if they weren't being super aggressive with, you know, treatment several times a week or whatever, still getting on the ball with uh, implementing some uh, even family strategies at home. I think it's an opportunity a lot of doctors miss and really kind of lead parents, yeah, and kind of lead parents to, you know, with we'll do what you want and because there's not a little more um, aggression on the doctor's part with, you know, we can wait to have her evaluated. But these are lots of things that you could do instead. Were you getting any kind of helpful advice like that or was it mostly let's just wait and see? You know, it, it was a little bit of both. It was kind of a let's okay. wait and see, it's up to you, but here are some things you can do in the meantime. And are you doing okay, these kinds good. of things? Are you repeating yourself as you talk to your child? Do you talk to your child? Which is a strange thing. I mean, most pe- a lot of people don't or don't know how to talk to a, right. a toddler and infant. And I said, oh, I know. A lot of parents things. are, though. And you were one of those educated mommies that you were already doing all of that. You already Absolutely. were reading and talking and repeating and doing everything uh-huh. you did, right? Yeah. <laughs> you bet. You bet. And so it was just frustrating when things just weren't happening. And I thought, well, what is going on? And so, you know, we went back in and right around that 18 months, we were saying, okay, let's do it. Let's figure out what we can do next. And so your husband was on board with that too, right? He was. And yeah. surprisingly, that's when my husband said, oh, you know what, honey? I I kind of had a speech problem when I was a kid. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me this? <laughs> yeah. And so um, yeah. when he mentioned I, that he had had some problems, I was kind of like, okay, we really got to get this looked at. Right. And because of your medical background, because you're an RN, you really know how important it is when you start to uncover those little family histories. And from what I remember reading in your book, Leslie, you didn't just have – dad who had a little bit of an issue there were several people in your family when you started really digging right previous communication challenges yeah yeah yes yes yeah it's amazing how many um and i mean it it makes it sound like there's just a ton but um you start looking and you think huh well there was kind of a little issue with so and so or hmm okay, there's some cousins that might that have gone to speech therapy. I didn't even realize that. And all exactly. of a sudden the picture becomes a lot clearer and you start looking at right. sort of your family as a whole. I know, and I have that same family history in my family. My mother's dad, you know, of course was not diagnosed with childhood apraxia of speech, but I am certain that was his uh. diagnosis or should have been when he was um, younger and then he had... Uh, six children, and the youngest was um, really close to my age. I think we we're maybe two or three months apart. So mm-hmm. his oldest child had was yeah. the same age as to had a child the same age as his youngest child, and he was really hard to understand. And even mm-hmm. with therapy, and again, this is back in the seventies, still had some, a lot of difficulty communicating even as an adult. But then not that that 
little spin of the genetic roulette wheel, it doesn't mean that everybody in your family is affected uh, significantly, but you can have then people who have lots of little issues and maybe even subclinical issues. And I think that that's what you're describing happened with your family. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly it. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And so walk us through then kind of he, he started pointing this out and then you started getting a little more concerned. So what happened next? Uh-huh. Well, what happened next was we did find a pediatric SLP that was located in, in our area. We were living in Minnesota at the time, small mm-hmm. town, cute college town, and I thought, well, gee, there isn't going to be anyone here. But sure enough, right. there was. And... um we got Kate in right away, and um, she she worked with this SLP for a couple of weeks, I would say. We went maybe once a week for about four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. And this um, therapist, oh, you know, I tell you, the first couple of times I was there, it was heartbreaking. We yeah. worked with Kate on just identifying animal sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the therapist would hold up like a little Fisher-Price piglet and say, what mm-hmm. animal noise, you know, what's the sound make? And she would just sit there and stare at it. And I thought, yeah. oh, you know, it just broke my heart. And then she'd pull out Painful. like a little doggy. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, and my daughter just looked at it like, well, I know what that is, but I'm not going to tell you. And she well, would just kind of toddle off and... I right. just I wanted just to break down into tears a little bit. Right. right. So now she didn't have anyway. any receptive language issues at this point. She was understanding words. You were not concerned about anything other than expressive language or speech at this point, right? Well, receptive was fantastic. This kid yeah. had wonderful receptive language. It was really her expressive. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. she just um, right. She couldn't get her thoughts out. Not at all. Right. Right. And yeah. so you knew she had something to say. It wasn't that she didn't understand words. It wasn't that she wasn't social. She was trying to communicate with you. She did some gestures and things, right? Yes, she sure did. We would say, want to go for a walk? And she'd go grab her shoes from the back door area and, you know, give us the shoes and stand there and smile and nod her head. Yes, I want to go right. on a walk. You know, right. and so you knew she understood. You knew without uh-huh. a doubt that she understood language, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. I want to make. The, I just want to make that really clear for some of our listeners who are moms, who mm-hmm. who may be thinking, "Oh, that's a little different from my child because my child doesn't yet follow directions, or my child doesn't really link meanings with words." And I want to be sure that we're. Really clear so that parents, sometimes they'll hear someone else's story and kind of hang on to bits of it without realizing. And I want parents to recognize, too, when there are real similarities with what you're saying with how Kate was when she was two, and that it wasn't that she didn't get language or didn't understand what people were saying to her. That was developing beautifully. It was just her ability to be able to express herself. Okay. Okay. You got it. Yeah. Interrupting. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that that's a really important take-home message, and that was, you know, truly something that we we probably she probably even excelled in her receptive language, right. and you know, she really just listened to mom and dad a lot, and you could just see everything kind of connecting, 
And right. and then when she wasn't, you know, able to perform or with that um receptive or that with that expressive language, that's when you could see on her face, Oh my gosh, I want to talk with you guys but I just can't right. I just can't get it out. Yeah. Right, right. And I'm so glad you recognized that too and didn't didn't keep waiting for something to just kind of kick in and happen. You went ahead and took action even when she was 18 months old. So you started therapy, and those first sessions were excruciating. They were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because she, did, she didn't really um, pick up on that imitation piece right away. No. Right? Is that oh, what you're no. saying? Okay. Absolutely no. She did not quite get that. And, you know, what was really the hardest, I'll be honest, you know, Laura, is that, this therapist was trying to get her to say mama. And, yeah. oh, that was what really started to break my heart. We we moved from right. those animal sounds into mama. And she wasn't saying it. And right. and I thought, this is like a child's first word, right? This should be happening. Right. And right. it wasn't. And it's the one and word you wanted to hear more than anything. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. So my tears, my eyes welled up with little tears, and I thought, okay, this just isn't going to happen. It's a good thing we're here. And I really started to be kind of, you know, stoic about the whole thing. We're here for a reason. We've got to get this kid to say mama. So, um, yeah. Now, let me ask you this. I think I remember reading this in your book. When you first got referred for speech, though, you were a little... Not hesitant, but you kind of questioned the doctor, even if you didn't do it out loud in your own mind, like, what's this therapist going to be able to do that I haven't been able to do? Because lots of moms feel like that, especially when they're highly educated moms like you are who have done a great job. And you think, what in the world can this therapist bring to the table that I haven't (laughs) been able to do with my own baby? And I think that is so important professionals to realize that moms feel that way and so when we first meet a mom and we're sensing that hesitancy and we're sensing that reluctance to think do you even know what you're doing here it's not really because of us it's because of how scared that mom is and her own all the feelings that are wrapped up when you have something wrong or something not going as expected with your baby. And it's really about the mom, not about how she directly feels about you as a person. And I think a lot of therapists misinterpret that. And a lot of those professional, uh, that family dynamic and professional uh, mom relationship doesn't always start off on the right foot. And the therapist thinks it's something that it's not. It's really wrapped up in, Mom being scared half to death. <laughs> yes, that is true. Um, all of that, you know, I, I think I was scared and I may be a little intimidated. And and just like you said, well, what can she do that I haven't been able to do before? Um, right. What piece of it am I missing? And, and maybe just a tiny bit defensive, I suppose. And yeah. so, you know, I got to... Um, you know, I think I just sort of had to put those feelings kind of on the shelf, and I figured, you know, this woman is a professional, and this is what she does for a living, and mm-hmm. I am going to just put my trust in her to help my daughter learn to speak the way she needs to speak. And, and you know, truly, those emotions really do get involved. You don't think they will. 
And it's right. kind of the same thing with, um, you know, parents trying to help their children with their homework. You know, you right. you think, oh, I can do that, no big deal. And then before you know it, your child is having a meltdown. You're yelling at your kid. Why can't you, you, you know, two plus two, you know. Right. <laughs> And that's why we have teachers right. and we have parents. And that's why we have speech pathologists and we have mothers. So exactly. we just can't do it all. Yeah, I think that would be my, do, my best advice. Yeah, and I do think it's really easy as a mom to get super, um, get your feelings hurt and get defensive and get and let those kinds of emotions take over those first few sessions. So I love your advice. Put it on the shelf. And just think, this is about making my child better, and I am here to do that. And what we've done in the past hasn't worked, so we're going to try something new. And I think that really helps moms. And for therapists, I think it really needs to be about meeting mom where she is and not letting it, not taking some of those things so personally and not feeling, and, and for the therapist not to get defensive, not to feel like, oh, this mom is driving me crazy. Other, when, when, when mom is really questioning, what are you doing? How much experience do you have? Have you seen a child like this? That it's always better to be reassuring and try not to let your own personal, um, you know, let it be about you. It really needs to be about this mom and this child and, and redirect if you feel like it's going south, that relationship right from the beginning, um, to really get in there and, and help mom know that you want her to be on your team and that you're all going to do this together. And I think Absolutely. that's a better time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting for me to kind of read that. All right, so keep going with your story. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so we met with this speech pathologist. Kate seemed to be making some progress. She started saying some more words. We did mm-hmm. get her to say mama, and that was a really neat feeling. Um, and what did and you what, do? What, what kinds of specific things did you do? Was it just purely imitative, or did you play games? Because I, I know we have some moms listening today that if they can right. just hear that word, yes, they're going to yes. feel like um, everything will be better. Well, I will be honest with Kate. What got her to say mama was um, going back and forth on kind of a big, giant tire swing that was inside uh-huh. this, this clinic. And so she just met. So a lot of movement. Now, my daughter really responds well to movement. Not all kids like it, but this right, one right. was, I mean, she is just very engaged in it. And so back and forth, back and forth, and say, mama, mama. So we did a lot of that imitation. And mm-hmm. that is really what got Kate to say her first mama. Now, uh-huh. prior to that, she had started saying hi. And hi mm-hmm. came out around 13 months. It mm-hmm. was the one and only word she had. And it's a good one. It's a good one. It's a good one. Right? It's good and cute. So she had been saying hi, but really we couldn't get her to say anything else. Uh-huh. So it went, hi, mama, ball. <laughs> and those yeah. were the words. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so did she, was she able to do some of those animal sounds imitatively? I love that your therapist didn't go straight to real words that she was starting to do some simpler kinds of really developmentally appropriate things. Did animal sounds stick with her? Did she have any success with that at all? 
or no? Not? Honestly, no. That okay. kind of went away. Okay. Um, she okay. lost interest in it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good that was not that a big deal to her. You know, okay. and I suppose every child is different. If, if animals are a big interest to that child, they nice. they may go right to it. But yeah, for Kate, a lot of times, like, you know, yeah, and a lot of times kids will, if you can make it really fun, and it's, again, something they're super interested in, and um, when we use some of those exclamatory words and play sounds and those kinds of things first, but you're right. right, every kid kind of follows their own path on that. I just think it's great that your therapist started with things that were simpler and huh. perhaps would be easier, even if it didn't quite work, but uh, keep up with your story then. Absolutely. No, I was very pleased with that. You know, that was simple and easy, and and it right. wasn't, there wasn't a lot of pressure, and it was very, right. I really emphasize, it was very play-based. And, you know, even though we were really trying to get Kate to work, I don't think Kate had any idea. <laughs> you know, it was all yeah, funny. Yeah, it's supposed to and be play. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. So at the time, I was very pregnant. And so we were expecting oh, baby number two. Yeah. And so Which really I, complicates things. It certainly yeah. does. So yeah. I had this toddler. I had this huge belly. And lo and behold, baby Kelly was born. And so this is in January of that year after going for just a few months, really. And so we had a baby and the um, speech went on hold. In fact, the speech therapist called us and said, you know what, Kate's making some progress. I can't really see any reason for you to come back every week with an infant. And she has a delay at this point. She's probably going to catch up. And you just enjoy your new baby. You do all the things that we've talked about doing at home. If you want, we can make some home visits. But otherwise, I think you guys are going to be okay. Well, okay, I said. So we got busy taking care of baby. And in the meantime, my husband got uh, a a job um, offer in Chicago. So we... Wow, we really had a huge life change. So we put the house on the market and packed everything up, and we ended up moving to Chicago. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so really a lot of things went on hold. So speech truly went on hold for a while for little Kate while we moved and got settled. Right. That happens a lot with Mm -hmm. young families. And I get a lot of emails about that with moms who, once they're settled, and then sometimes it'll be six months or nine months or a year, and they'll think, oh, my gosh, I haven't really done anything else about the speech thing. Mm -hmm. And then they feel really badly about that. And I always just try to say, move forward. So what? You can't go back and change all of that. Don't beat yourself up. Life happens. You have babies. You move. Things Go on, just pick up where you are and move forward from this point and, and don't beat yourself up about it because absolutely not in hindsight. Right, right. Yes. So then yes. what happened? Well, so then we get to Chicago and, you know, I am getting unpacked and we're chatting with neighbors and things and there's a, a neighbor who mentioned a preschool and said, you know, there's this preschool that my daughter went to for speech. You might want to look into it. And I went, okay. And then, you know, I'd go about the community and I'd see things for, like, early intervention, maybe on bulletin boards at a coffee shop or something. And I'd think, right, hmm, right. is your child not yeah. talking yet? And things like that. And so I thought, you know what? She's not. It's time. I've got to do something about this. And so and I called the number. How old was she at this point? 
How old is she at this point, Leslie? Let me think here. She must have been about two, like I, two and a half, I'm going to guess. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. about that, or maybe just a little younger. And mm-hmm. um, so we got early intervention to come out to our house, and they did a little assessment with Kate. And they said, all right, well, we'll let you know. Now, then they came back and said, yeah, she qualifies for services, but the problem is we can't get her in for six months. We've got a big Oh, no. And Illinois has a great program. That really kind of surprised yeah. me. Yeah, at the time wow. we were kind of behind. Yeah, and so yeah. Um, we. And she is eight now. So this happened. She is eight. Yeah, six years ago. Okay, six years ago, right? So they said, you know, we just, we just really would. You would have to wait six months, and by the time we get her in, she's going to be kind of at the tail end for right. early intervention services. She'll be turning three shortly afterwards. And I said, oh well, okay. So we went the private route. And I found a wonderful private speech pathologist right nearby, and um, we have been going to them pretty much the the duration. They have been Mm -hmm. our go-to speech OT people since forever, it seems. And they worked really well with Kate. Mm-hmm. And that's how we, that's how we did it. And, and we so also she was a little older at that point too. Yeah, she was a little mm-hmm. older, so uh, you knew that maturation hadn't really fixed everything because she right. still at this at this point. What had she added some words? Had she made some progress on her own? Yeah. Uh huh. She had made some progress on her own, and I boy, I tell you, this kiddo had so many little words and gestures and things that she would say, um, like Nini was her blanket. So if she uh-huh. said Nini, Nini, we knew she wanted her blanket. Um, but it's for, way far off from blanket. I mean, that's a really absolutely approximation, uh-huh. right? It right. sure is. Yes, <laughs> but it was Nini, and so. Um, but we had all kinds of little approximations and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, she would make like a sucking sound, like sucking from a straw if she was thirsty. Uh-huh. And, you know, just a whole gamut of different little things like that that my husband and I really started to interpret. And we could really figure out, okay, this is what she wants. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was kind of cute that she had developed this, but we still knew, no, this isn't quite right. Yeah. And I think compensatory strategies are wonderful, and we do not need to dismiss that as a child's strength, but it's not the same as talking. It's not the same. And at two and a half, that language explosion should have already happened or have been in full force, so you really knew at that point we had to get something going. So We did. And so at two and a half, you have a new place here in Chicago, and my the therapist who um you know did kind of all that intake and all of the diagnostic stuff i said to her and she will still talk about this to this day she will say leslie lindsay i think you were the only parent who ever said at the end of the evaluation so what is it what's wrong with my kid yeah <laughs> and i love I moms really- like that i love it i love it yeah and she said, you know, it just, you, you know, a lot of parents don't ask that, but you did. And I just had to answer you honestly. And I told you, I think it's childhood apraxia of speech. And she mm-hmm. said, and then you had all these questions and really great questions. What is this? What should I do? What does this mean? And um, so 
anyway, but she did tell me at the time, she says, we think your daughter is about nine months behind from where she needs to be for mm-hmm. her age. And so she is, you know, was speaking like, you know, a one-year-old nearly. And yeah. I thought, oh, boy, okay. And, you know, she told me all these other things that, you know, we can get her caught up. It's going to take some time. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And so, but hearing that she was about nine months to a year behind her peers, I, that was hard. That was a big blow. Right, right, right. But I think it's important that that you heard that and that she was really honest and really objective and kind of laid it out there for, for you mm-hmm. so that you could um, hear that and then move on to that next phase, which is what are we going to do about this? And so that right. it's real, real serious uh, for you. And I love that she just told you right away that it's childhood apraxia of speech because a lot of therapists will not diagnose that before three, even when Absolutely. the signs and symptoms are there right in front of them. And I love yes. that you had a therapist who just did it. And uh, I know that that's news for you, that that's controversial for a lot of speech pathologists. It's not for me, but it wasn't for your person either. Yes, yes. And, you know, in all my research and writing the book, I really, that point was really driven home, that that is a very controversial, you know, giving that diagnosis and making sure that it's not too early, it's not too late. And I, I just, you know, it sounds kind of ignorant on my part at this point to say, really, it was? I had no idea because my therapist really did come right out and just right. told me how, how how she saw it. Yeah, but a lot of therapists really don't. And, I, again, I know that you know that now because of yes. writing the book and all of your research, but a lot of even speech pathologists who specialize in early intervention kind of give other therapists a lot of flack for going ahead and making that diagnosis before a child is three because of uh, the American Speech and Hearing Association's position paper on that that said, you know, really we don't want that formal diagnosis made until after a child is three because so many other speech delays can look like that to someone who is not uh, trained and someone who's not well-versed in motor planning issues and in early intervention. And my take on that is, but if you are well-trained and if you do know what you're talking about, don't withhold information from parents when diagnostically that's what's going on with the child. Absolutely. I couldn't agree anymore. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what happened next? I'll get off my soapbox for a minute about that. You just keep going. <laughs> well, you know, I was a little, um, I, I just didn't understand what it meant. And so right. that's where things really, I got kind of slowed down a little bit. Well, okay, here's what it is. I felt some relief having the diagnosis. Okay, it's called apraxia. So that's why Kate's not talking. And. Uh-huh. No big deal. Now I've got a diagnosis, you know, being the nurse that I am. Okay, I've got a diagnosis. What's my what's my next plan? What's the step here? And so then it was a big can of worms. It was like, okay, mm-hmm. whoa, there is more to this apraxia thing than just apraxia. And wow. so I my my therapist that day, you know, where she said, Here's what it is, she told me about apraxia kids. And so mm-hmm. I go home eventually. I know I, I didn't do this right away. 
So a lot of moms probably would be like, okay, oh, my gosh, this is what's going on with my kid. I'm right, where's the laptop? You know, but yeah. um, I kind of went on with my life, and I thought, okay, big deal, yeah. whoop-de-doo. And so I yeah. started Googling it, and I went to Apraxia Kids, and then I kind of got scared and a little yeah. overwhelmed yeah. and kind of cranky. And yeah, I totally it, know that. And a lot of therapists, too, don't really understand that from a mom's perspective because when you read, even Apraxia Kids is a wonderful website, but when yes. you really start reading a lot on the Internet, everything seems to be worst-case scenario, and it mm-hmm. does scare the bejeebies out of lots <laughs> and lots of mothers, and then yes. they almost go into shutdown and can't, I mean, you're you're paralyzed by, oh, my goodness, she's never going to talk, she's never going to go to college, she's never going to get married, she's never going to, you know, have a normal life. Because a lot of that information is super, super, super scary when you're first taking yeah. a look at it. Yeah, and when you Absolutely. first have that idea. Yeah, and that's one of the first, That's one of the reasons I um, launched my website is because of that. Just to counter that whole worst case scenario um, mm-hmm. information vacuum out. So moms would know, okay, that's what's going on. And again, regardless of what the diagnosis is, but with early intervention and consistent services, and when we get everybody on board, kids get better. There is hope. You do not mm-hmm. have to think it's going to be a lifelong, um, significant problem. And I know that you, I think I read this in the book that. That you, lots of therapists will say, once you're diagnosed with apraxia of speech, that never really goes away. But even considering that, many, many, many children with apraxia make significant gains and and get better and go on to be wonderful communicators. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Yeah, I did talk about that in the book because, you know, I think it's just, you know, backing up to the uh, Apraxia Kids website, which is full of all kinds of wonderful information, but it can be overwhelmed if you just sit there and read article after article. And um, and I think that that, you know, the important thing to realize is these kids do get better and they can overcome so much, nearly everything, you know. And at at this point, Kate... You know, she doesn't even really think about her apraxia. That is not even really an issue. Now, she's eight years old. She was eight in April. And Mm -hmm. the fact that she has dealt with apraxia doesn't even really faze her. And that is awesome for moms to hear, mothers today mm -hmm. of two-year-olds and three-year-olds and four-year-olds who are listening to this show. That is a wonderful testimony for them to hear and really wrap their arms around and yeah. cling to, even if you feel like, gosh, this is never, ever, ever going to get better. Many, many children do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and they do. And, you know, Kate has told me before, well, when I was writing the book, I facilitated some parent groups, and <laughs> we all met up together at a Panera, and we chatted, and, you know, I had some, you know, kind of, I don't know, games and group discussions, and it was kind of a structured thing, too. But, um, you know, Kate wanted to come with me one time. And I said, Mm -hmm. you do? You want to come? And she said, yeah, Mom, I do. And I said, well, all right, sure. Why don't you? How old was she at this point? How old was she at that point, Leslie? 
I'm guessing she was probably six. I bet she mm-hmm. was six. Mm-hmm. And so Kate came and she said to this group of moms, now they were all, there were a couple, maybe one dad, and she said, mm-hmm. I know you are thinking that apraxia is serious, but it is not. And wow. everyone just <laughs> smiled and they laughed and she said, Aww. It's not a big deal. All you have to do is love your kid and make sure they go to speech therapy. And things will get better. And I just use my eyes right now. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. It was really touching. And everyone there, you know, they were dabbing their eyes too, you know. And it was adorable. So in her mind, this wasn't a big deal. In her mind, apraxia, oh, well, big deal, just another chapter in my short little life, you know, right. and I've got many more chapters to go and move on, Mom, who cares, <laughs> you know, was sort of what she was saying. Right. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad you shared that story. But and, but I love the last piece of her advice, but take her to speech therapy because some parents yes. will hear a story like that and think, oh, fine long term is there any doubt in your mind had she not had intervention that she would be at the point that she's at right now oh my gosh she would not be where she is at right now if we did not do speech therapy i am certain on that um we had to get her there and for a while kate was in speech therapy three times a week for an hour yeah yeah you know it was intense and well Mm -hmm. i you know Two of those were speech. One of those was feeding therapy. But it was with the same practitioner every single time. And, um, you know, I I feel very strongly that that is that consistency and that intensity that we did for her is really what got her over the hump. Yeah. So did you start out with that level of service right at the beginning for her, Leslie? Or what did you, when you moved to that practice, did you guys start at three times a week? Or or what did you do right from two and a half? I believe it was twice a week at two Mm -hmm. and a half. Mm -hmm. And um, we did that until she was about three. And around age three, she was still just not eating like I thought she needed to be eating. She would mm-hmm. pocket her food a lot, and she'd have these big mm-hmm. you know, chipmunk cheeks. We would right. um, have to remind Kate, say, you need to remember to chew and swallow. And, right. you know, she would just kind of keep cramming things into her mouth. So a lot of that mm-hmm. overstuffing, or we would have to remind her, take a drink. And so, right. and she was very picky with what kinds of foods she would eat, too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we popped on the, the feeding therapy right then at, at that um, about three years, like three years and a month or so. Mm-hmm. And then we worked on feeding therapy in addition to all of the speech pieces until hmm, probably about the time she was three and a half. Mm-hmm. So maybe a good six months. Yeah, yeah. And then we dropped That's back perfect. down to twice twice a week. And how is her how are her speech language skills progressing at this point? Well, great. Um she was really dismissed completely from speech right before she entered kindergarten. So, oh, right before going awesome. to kindergarten, private speech therapy ended for her. Mhm. And That's they great. felt like 
and that's great. It's really great. And so they felt like at the school level she could access the curriculum and get along with her friends and be social and everything at that kindergarten age. And mm-hmm. um, so we really don't have any problems with that. And then this past year, second grade, um, proud mommy moment, uh, she was in Reader's Theater. And I don't know if you're not familiar with Reader's Theater, it, um has to do with scripts, and the kids read uh-huh. familiar stories, scripts. All they mm-hmm. do is read. There are no props. There's no getting dressed up. It's not a stage or anything like that, but it's really right. to enhance their fluency. And right. so Kate said, yeah, I'll do Reader's Theater, and, like, wanted to do it. So we signed her up for the after-school club, and she mm-hmm. performed Wicked really well, oh. and oh. we were proud. And so oh. it's like... This apraxia thing, it's not stopping her. That is what I, I really think we should emphasize. It doesn't stop her. Right, and so she's not had any academic issues, any reading issues, any of those other things that we might see with a school-age child with that previous history. No, that's not exactly true. She does struggle with reading, and she does okay. struggle with spelling. And okay. um, even though she wanted to do the Reader's Theater, well, she wasn't great at it. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it's awesome yeah. that she wanted to do it and that she doesn't feel like her, that it stops her or makes her hesitant to participate in anything she would want to do or anything that her little friends are doing either. Absolutely, yes. Okay. That's, that's okay. the key. Yeah. Okay, great. But, no, she she certainly does. She was later to read than normal and... um Really and that happens a lot. I mean, yeah. we know that there's a link there. We And that's something I talk to moms about all the time. I'll say we do not have a crystal ball. We cannot predict which kids of ours that have had some speech-language delays, in particular with motor planning issues. We can't predict which ones will have those issues. But I do think it's always a wise move for even a therapist in early intervention programs if when a mom is asking about that to to say what we know, and there is more of a risk for those kinds of kids. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay. And I, again, I would really emphasize that say what you know. If you you know that, share that with that parent. Right. Yeah. That's great. All right. So tell us when you decided that you were going to write a book, because you had some difficulty finding out accurate information that didn't scare you to death, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, so I think, oh, about that time that we were sort of in the midst of feeding therapy and going to the clinic three times a week, I was just kind of exasperated. And I said to the, you know, I just kind of plopped down in the waiting room and I said, oh, isn't there a book on this subject? I'd really just love something to read. And they said, well, no, not really. And I said, how can there not be? There are books on everything. There's books on, you know, childhood depression and Asperger's and autism and everything. And they said, I said, can I borrow a textbook? And they said, well, even our textbooks didn't really talk about, you know, apraxia in the the sort of detail that you're wanting. Oh, okay. Did they tell you that a lot of grad schools don't even teach childhood apraxia of speech? Even now, there are... Professors in who who are speech language pathologists who think this diagnosis does not exist. 
And so there are some institutions that you can go to and get a master's degree in speech pathology. And the person teaching your class says that is not a valid diagnosis. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's, wow, that is shocking to me. Uh, They did not mention that, no, but... They uh, they did bring up some textbooks that I might be interested in, and so I did okay. find some old school textbooks through some college universities and through their libraries and interlibrary loans. And you know, I'm really kind of a nerd at heart, so this right. really I, I really enjoyed that research piece of it. But that was mm-hmm. it was one of the um, therapists who just happened to walk into the waiting room that day, and I said, I just I'm just so frustrated. I just want some information about this. I want a book. And she said, you need to write the book. The job is yours. Do it. Wow. wow. And so I said, oh, I couldn't. I don't know enough about it. She said, you, you will. You will learn it. Yeah. And you're and living so, it. Yeah. And I'm living it. And so I thought, all right, let me try to figure out how to do this. So that came when Kate was about three years and maybe four months old. Mm-hmm. That, you know, here I thought, oh, I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Let me write a book. Hello. Yeah, I was kind of a time in the world. Yeah, right. <laughs> time, energy—it's just abundant. So that's when it all kind of came down. And I went home that afternoon with my kiddos, and I said to my husband, and I said, you know, they told me I should write the book. And he said, mm-hmm. Well, why don't you? You like writing. You could write it. And I said, oh, boy, I don't know. So I stewed on it for a while, and I thought, and then I finally decided, okay, I'm going to go for it. So I did. Yeah, and it is a fabulous resource. I've had so many people uh, mention it to me and ask me, have you read it? Did you like it? You know, so and so I think it's such a good book, and I think it's so important for Parents, but any therapists out there, if you have a hang-up about reading a book that's not a textbook, I want you to get over that today because <laughs> it really, um, sometimes our textbooks are so clinical and you don't really get the um, nuts and bolts of the message or you don't even really know how to take the information from an academic perspective and make it really functional in real life. And so I think your book does a fabulous job of that. And uh, therapists need to read it and then they need to be able to share that information. And you are such a great writer, Leslie, and are so personable and they'll be able to share that information that they glean from the book with the parents that they're working with. And so I just think it's an excellent, excellent resource. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for that compliment. You know, I I really wanted the book to be accessible to parents, but I also wanted therapists to feel like they weren't just reading a bunch of fluff. And so I really try to balance that out, and um, and I'm glad it came across that way. That makes me feel like I did my job. (laughs) Yeah, you totally did. So tell us how it's organized and how you kind of – set it up because I love that you have the same features in every chapter with I can't remember exactly what it's called now and I'm trying to look and I don't really know if I have it sure. labeled like I want it but parents parents ask I think is what you call it 
Right, right. Yeah, you know, here's um, kind of what I did was, you know, I know parents are busy, right? Well, everyone is, but, you know, when you're a parent, you have snippets of time. You've got 10 minutes. You've got, you know, 15 minutes here on the parent pickup line for your child at school or something. What can you read quickly? So every chapter comes up with this nuts and bolts of the chapter. Um, it, it talks a little bit about here. here's what's going to be in this chapter. And that is sort of how we start that way. And um, But I also have usually like some kind of personal story that goes along with that chapter, mm-hmm. um, a little snippet of our life, you know. Wow. Um, and so then and then after I do that, I just kind of jump into some things. Maybe I'll throw in a bit of a little research. Maybe I'll throw in maybe a fun chart, something like that. Um, then I talk a little bit about what's a parent to do. And this is a step-by-step approach to dealing with a particular concern. Um, And then also I have a parent's cope section, at least in every chapter. These are all sort of shaded little text boxes. Parent's cope, what can you do? Um, Helping you reframe a troubling moment. Um, A lot of these um, come from families that were in my groups. Uh, Maybe a parent raises their hand and talks about an experience that kind of thing. Um, At the end of each chapter, I always summarize. Um, I call it, you know, say that again, and that's a chapter summary. And um, because I know that each chapter is just, it's just chock full of information. And you're going to think, what did I just read? So here we are, a nice little chapter summary. And then we end each chapter with recommended resources. Yeah, and I think that be, section is great for therapists. Is that what you're about oh, to say? Yeah, well, even for therapists, for parents, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love yeah. it. I think it's a, a great, great way to do that. I love, too, that you have it divided into different sections, and your first mm-hmm. section is, and you really kind of walk a family through um, the whole process. And I'm getting some feedback now. Is that bothering you, Leslie? Are you hearing that feedback? I'm not hearing anything. Okay, good. Good deal. Maybe yeah. it's just on my end. And so yeah. your your section one is you're talking about the speech basics, and then section two, you're getting the diagnosis, and you're talking all about what childhood apraxia of speech is. But uh-huh. then you move on to helping your child with talking about therapy and then the other um, alternative treatment approaches. They're great information in your book about that with fish oil and diet and hippotherapy and music, all those other things. And lots of times speech pathologists don't really want to talk about that stuff because they feel like it's outside their scope of practice. Right. Have have you encountered that? Yeah. Well, I have. And, uh, you know, if they – if it's not if it's outside of their scope of practice, which it probably is, the therapists that I have worked with are honest about that, and they will say mm-hmm. that's not really what we do. But I have heard great things about it, or I've heard so so things about X Y Z. But if you want to check it out for you, go for it. And so I think I like that. I think that they're giving parents the option. Yeah, I do too. And that's pretty much what I say verbatim to parents. Either. I have heard about that, and I don't have enough information to even really have an opinion about it, or 
I've had mixed results from families. Some families mm-hmm. have done it and not really felt like it was something for them. Some families have really liked that and they feel like that's what's made a difference for their child. And I always end it with, but check it out for yourself so that yes. families are making those decisions. But I love that you have all of that um, information compiled so that a parent can get a really good summary and a good idea of, is this something I want to pursue for our family? Right, right. And every family is different. And I think that that is really a key to remember that every family is going to have just a slightly different perspective on things. And if it works for your neighbor, that's fine. It may or may not work for you, but think about it. Right. And I think you've done a great job being a nurse really breaking down especially the uh, the dietary stuff and the nutritional um, looking at the diets looking at the supplements that sort of thing and I loved your information on that and I'm going to really share that with parents the next time they say what about fish oil I'll be able to say I want you to read this chapter in this book (laughs) and then they can again pursue it with their own positions and, and you know their own information gathering process Yes, absolutely. That, and that, that's really important because letting parents make those decisions themselves, I think it is empowering. And, and rather than being prescriptive, you should do this, you should do that, right. it's sort of that's giving them a choice. Right. Now, music was helpful for Kate, right? You guys did a lot it was. of music. Yeah. 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 She, really, she really likes music and she loves to move. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. put those things together and, you know, what have you got? You know, you got a little cute little dancing kiddo. <laughs> and so yeah. she she really did like that. Mm-hmm. Music therapy was nice for her. And I think you have some great information about that too. Um, in our last five minutes, Leslie, what kinds of things would you want to share with parents that we haven't gotten to talk about today? Wow, um, that's kind of a big question. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a lot. Um, but let me think just to narrow it down a little bit here. Um, you know, I think parents, I think it's just really important that you work with your child. You know your child. What they enjoy doing is really key. Um, like mm-hmm. for, for my Kate, she loves to do active things, and I know that about her. And so if I want to get those words out, we need to do something active together. And that might mean taking a walk in the park and picking up rocks and talking about the rocks that we see or skipping or, you know, being silly in something that we're doing together. Um, You know, it may mean that we, we garden and we talk about the colors of the flowers and, you know, the prickliness of you know the you know the the leaves or something like that. Yeah. And so I think that that's what's really important is that you cater to that child and take their lead in a lot of things rather than we are going to sit and you are going to learn some words. Here are some flashcards. You know, <laughs> not always going to to work. Um right. but yeah, I would say that that my message really is just know your child, know what they like and how to work with them. And I bet that you were great at sharing that information with her therapist so that they could capitalize on her interest as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you want things to be personalized and individualized for your child and not just a big catch-all for anyone. 
Exactly, exactly. All right, I love that advice. And then our parting words for therapists, I love the top 11 things that yes. you and your speech language pathologist should be doing for a successful motor programming apraxia approach to therapy. I love that list. If anyone has a book, it's on pages 118 through 120. <laughs> and again, I like this list so much that I think I'm going to copy it. It's one of the things that I'll share with parents from your book because it really okay. does summarize um, how I do therapy and what I think is important for um, therapists to really hone in on, too. So the top 11 things. Do you just want me to read through those, Leslie? I don't know if you have a copy of your book right in front of you, but I do. And I'll be sure, happy. go ahead. Go ahead and read through those. Yeah, number one is intensive services, and you talk really about making sure that you um, address those therapy needs, and if a child needs a couple of times a week or three times a week that you're looking at that and figuring out how to make that happen. But the most important thing you say there is remember that you'll need to practice with your child five to seven days a week outside of therapy time. And I love that you just put that right there in the beginning because no kid ever achieves their potential if it's just in weekly therapy sessions. No matter how good the therapist is, you're not going to get the kind of results that you could get when you have parents on board and everybody's working on communication all week long. So that was number one. Number two is many repetitions and drills. And you're so great about saying that, we have to get um, speech to become automatic, and we can only do that if they have lots of opportunities to say the same words over and over again. And then you address, though, that they also need little rest breaks in between those times so that um, they don't get overly fatigued and that they can continue, though, to participate and again, practice enough to make those words become automatic. So I think you gave some great examples there, too, about the personal trainer analogy, mm-hmm. that your trainer can teach you how to work your muscles, but if you're only going to the gym once a week, it's not really going to do anything. Your progress comes all those other practice sessions the rest of the mm-hmm. week. So I yeah. love that analogy. Number three is be systematic to start with the simple and then work up to the more complex and how to build on progress. So that was super. Number four is talking about jaw, tongue, and lip strengthening. And some children with uh, childhood apraxia speech have some weakness, some don't. Normally, those kinds of exercises with apraxic kids, uh, research tells us that they may not be of any benefit because there's no other weakness there, but you're really going to have to work with your therapist to figure out where your kid falls with that um, that piece. Are you there still? Yes, yes, I'm here. Okay, okay. Number five, motor memory. So you're teaching those motor skills uh, and you have to really um, get those programmed in and then help that help your child develop that. Again, what we call to be motor memory is to help her make um, those words, again, um, stored so that she can access those when she really, really needs those to communicate. Right. We've got to hurry. We have 90 seconds. Auditory discrimination. (laughs) 
telling the difference between words and that listening piece. And again, not all children with apraxia, childhood apraxia of speech have that difficulty, but some do. So you're going to want to work with a speech pathologist to figure out if that's a difficulty that your child has too. Number seven is so important. Kids with CAS are very aware of what sounds and words they can and cannot say. And so you've got to remember that. Yes, and that's really, very key. Yeah, very key with helping their, your child understand that they are smart and that you know that she knows what she can and cannot do. So yeah. really recognizing that and becoming aware of that, helping a child learn how to self-monitor. Uh, you talk about the other issues involved with uh, apraxia, the rate, tone, intonation, and stress, the prosody, and how those are also important to intelligibility. And those are factors that we need to be treating as well. Number 10 is my favorite one. We need to teach compensatory strategies yes, so that we yes. can help a child learn how to be more intelligible. And then number 11, I, I changed my mind. This is my favorite one. Give oh, your child my success. Favorite too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and everybody needs success and everybody needs to feel like they're good at something, and we need to be building that into our therapy sessions too. So I think those were 100%. great, great, great um, things for us to consider as therapists when we're developing treatment plans. And we need to be sharing those things with parents and talking about why we're doing the things we're doing so it doesn't look loosey-goosey and it doesn't look like we don't have a consistent plan. And so, again, um, I think your book does such a great job of speaking to um, all of the things involved with helping a child who uh, is, has apraxia, whether you're a therapist or a parent, and I'm so glad that you could be on and share that with us today. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. The hour flew by. It um, does fly by every week. Tell us, tell parents and therapists where they can get your book, Leslie, if they don't already okay. have it. Uh, you can get the book at Barnes & Noble uh, brick-and-mortar stores. You can also get it um, online on Amazon. You can get it mm -hmm. from Woodbine House, which is the publisher. Um, all on, on Those are online as well. So, um and I understand that they are working on an e-reader format, which should be coming out in the really near future. So you can get it that way. I'm also on Facebook. I have a Speaking of Apraxio um, Facebook page. I'm also on Twitter. So you can look for me there. I also blog about it at um, speakingofapraxia.com. And that's well, every Monday. And I'm so glad that you um, gave us all those ways to um, reach you and read more about what you're doing and I linked your Facebook page today on teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page so I wanted to share that with our listeners as well. Wonderful. Okay. Thank, thank you so much Leslie. You're a wonderful guest. Thank I hope we can you. have you back at some time in the future too to share more uh, of your story and ours just not quite enough is it? <laughs> right. Thank you so much Laura. <laughs> thank Take care. you. Bye bye.